And all the people said, Amen. Thank you, Brian and choir. Um, and don't take any offense uh, when you do your top 10 next summer. I don't plan to be with you. All right? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, relishing in that idea. I'm just trying to say the whole idea is that I would not be with you. But when it comes up, you might count one vote for this. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Uh, I love this uh, 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 song. I, I just am uh, encouraged. Uh, what a wonderful statement of faith about the church and our service. It's good to worship with you this morning. Let me ask you if you would to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter twenty. It's been my experience that interims don't do well doing series. For example, if I told you I was going to preach on the Ten Commandments and took two, uh, ten weeks, you would say, are we never going to get a pastor? Does he know something we don't know? What are you and the answer is, uh, no, uh, you know, no, no uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with that, but we won't spend ten weeks, but allow me one more week. There's a lot more to say. But we'll go on to some other things. But this morning, I wanted to look one more time. If you bargain and barter with a two-bit God, one of many players, some low-ranking, competitive sort of God trying to get airspace like everybody else, then you know what you're going to do? You're going to bargain with him. You're going to behave when you think he's around, and you're going to misbehave when he's not. You're going to manipulate and bargain and deal and wheel, and you're going to serve that God like you think he deserves to be served. Well, good news. The good news is we serve the one true God, and we don't have to kind of... Uh, wonder and serve with some sort of oppressive, uh, 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 sort of uh, obsessive kind of idea. Did we do enough here? Did we do enough here? Did we say enough to this God and not insult this God? We don't live under the suspicion and kind of heaviness that so much of the world lived under. We have a God who has loved us. He's the God of all this world, and he's spoken to us. Now, it's still good news, but I have to tell you, there goes with that some responsibility. You can't manipulate this God. You shouldn't use him to manipulate others. This is a different kind of God. There's no rival for this God. This remarkable God who declares himself, this people of the covenant, and the God of this covenant, and they his people, this remarkable God is not to be trifled with. You are instead to worship him. And part of worshiping him and knowing him is somewhat different in the world. I don't know if you know this, but most religions in the ancient world weren't anything to do about morality. You might think, well, that's kind of odd. I thought that's what religions all were about at the root of it. Well, the truth is that's a strange enlightenment idea that really doesn't have much of anything to do with the ancient world that the Bible uh, was sort of uh, born in and emerged from. The truth is, most religions didn't care about your personal morality at all. It was about how you made that God feel. But this 
one true God wants the way you live and honor him to be reflected in the way you live and show respect for others. It's a new way of life, a new vision of life. Last week, we shared about the home, the importance of parents, and the importance of our faithfulness in marriage. This morning, I'd like you to look at several others of the commandments. We'll read several there beginning in verse 13. And I'll cluster these under the idea of showing respect and acknowledging the dignity of persons. In verse 13, you shall not commit murder. Down to 15, you shall not steal. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's, neighbor's wife or male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These all call for us to live in a way that shows respect for the people around us and to acknowledge the dignity and the worth of the people around us. At the most simple level, you shall not murder. And I think murder is an accurate translation. Uh, the, the image here in this Hebrew word for taking life is really the idea of taking innocent life. I, I don't think that it would be in conflict with other regulations in the Bible that would call for penalties uh, and, and so on, or it would undo the covenant announced in Noah about the death penalty, so to speak. Uh, those are other complicated issues that you could consider, but I don't think this suggests that we shouldn't take life at all. I think the idea here is the capricious or selfish intended murder of another person. And a person's life needs to be honored. I won't share primarily on that, but I just want to tell you, I worry about our culture when I see this. And the truth is, violence and the loss of violence, uh, loss of life by violence, has gone down in our country for some time now. It's been trending downward, and I'm, I'm greatly encouraged. But with these recent mass shootings, you just have to wonder if there's not a capriciousness of, about life, an indifference, a callousness of life that's being shown in the outbreak of these acts of madness and evil. I wonder as well with the abortion industry, if we're not one day to be held accountable for our capricious attitude towards life. I might just also warn you that what happens when a culture begins to treat young people in a certain way usually catches up with how that same culture treats older people. And I just wonder and I worry that we're losing a sense of reverence and respect for other people's lives. 
I think a person's property deserves to be respected. And I think in verse 17, that most difficult, struggle, hard, hard notion of coveting, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I just know it's a virtue that's almost disappeared in a consumer uh, it, it seems like so much of our coaching is to, exactly to, to get you to want what somebody else has. But all that to say, I think there is an undue desire to have something. And not just have a something like your neighbor has. Have a nice car if they have a nice car. But to have what they have. And the inkling and inclination that you wouldn't mind taking what's there. I think this is, a, again, an encroachment on the respect towards life that I worry is diminishing. But when we're in stride with God, we're going to be treating people better and differently, differently than the world treats them. And my word to you would be this. When we're really attuned to God, we're going to be attuned to the people around us and show them respect. It would extend to their lives, to their property, and it would also extend to their reputation. It would extend to their access to justice. And you say, well, where is he getting that? That's what I think really the commandment about not giving false testimony is about the way these terms are phrased i think the assumption is that this is in a court of law this the environment assumed by that command is again in the uh, kind of tribunal that would be administering justice and justice in the ancient world and still to some extent today is tied to eyewitness testimony there was no Matlock in the ancient world and no crime scene investigator. So you didn't get the DNA results back in the, in the, you know, just over the commercial right time and uh, find uh, the chemical kind of traces of some, uh, of some sort of innocence or, or guilt. Instead, ancient justice was tied to what people testified to in court. And so by adding this to his condensed list, if you will, God shows that people have a right to the reputation and their standing. You see, this could be a ploy to take their property, you understand. To their standing and to their day in court, they have a right to justice and to be treated fairly. But justice could be corrupted if a corrupt witness would just simply falsify their testimony. This is a heavy, heavy command. And at a minimum, I would suggest to you, I think this is a place that our culture is struggling. Maybe we're further down the road abandoning the commandments here than anywhere else. If we extend these uh, notions outside of the courtroom to apply them, I would just suggest to you, Christians have taken from this command an obligation to tell the truth. In James chapter 2, in the, uh, the uh, second through fifth verse, 
you'll find James instructing and warning about the danger of the tongue. And a person's faithfulness that he's talked about previously is really to a, a strong degree influenced by the tongue. It's what we say that demonstrates our faithfulness. Paul adds to the equation in Colossians chapter 3. He tells us not to deceive one another. Not to lie to one another. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 and following, he again instructs the necessity that truth mark our speech to one another. And then he adds the heavy, heavy burden that we speak the truth to one another, but when we speak the truth to one another, we add this. Add this. That you speak it in love. Wow. And when Christ has come and more fully revealed the nature of this remarkable God of all this world, the ante is up the demands are higher, and we can't be happy if we have just given a sworn, truthful statement. Now our statements to one another should bear the truth. And bear the truth with the purpose of in and intent of love. Wow. I uh, want to warn you, truth-telling is hard. If you thought you checked this off your list long ago, well, maybe you're a lot further down the road than this preacher, or maybe the most of us, or maybe you've checked it off too quickly. Because the truth is this, truth-telling and truth-living, living truthfully are all so combined. And when you fell on one, it makes it, terribly difficult to come through on the other and truth when it's matched with the command to exercise it in love becomes a matter that is challenging now i would have some simple warnings for you i'm not sure we always have to say something right and so if you see me out to eat afterwards and you say to me, I've never seen anyone eat so sloppily in a public place as you. Well, that may be the truth. I suppose in some way, someday I might be glad that you told me. But I'm not sure the world needs your verdict on everything, right? There are times we're not compelled to speak. But when we do speak with one another, we owe one another the truth. I think sometimes when we don't tell the truth, we say we do it because we love someone. We're going to spare them the heaviness of the truth, the harshness of the truth, the burden of the truth. And I can't say that there is a simple, easy way I can show you. I can just say to you, in the Bible, when exceptions are made, they don't celebrate the fact that the truth wasn't told, even though they may celebrate occasionally the outcome. 
But I stand with a long list of Christian witnesses who say we should not use these exceptions as the rule, right? And the rule, outside of some exceptional dire circumstance, the rule would be for us to be truthful, to speak the truth, and to speak it in love. We don't always have to speak. And we need to speak in love. I know there are times when people can speak the truth and kind of brag that they speak the truth when really they're just wielding the truth like a hammer or sword. They enjoy hurting people. I don't think that's what this is about. Sometimes there are devious efforts to speak the truth and yet still mislead. Let me warn you. If you leave the wrong impression, we're going to struggle to understand you as telling the truth, even if your facts are straight. Now, bear with me. I'm working off memory, so some of you may coach me afterwards. But I think it's from an old book called The Yearling. I don't know if there's anybody around who ever read The Yearling, but it seems like a long time ago. But all this to say, I believe there's a man there named Penny Baxter. Penny Baxter talks to his neighbor about his dog. But Penny Baxter wants his neighbor's gun. And he'll do almost anything for it. But he doesn't nearly have a value, something to trade for it. But he wants that gun and he'll have that gun. And around his neighbor, he takes up the strange, unprecedented behavior in his world. He starts talking down his hunting dog. Dog just won't hunt. This complaint, that complaint. The dog did this. The dog did that. Dog's no good. The neighbor never heard anybody talk about their dog like that. Like Penny intended, the neighbor decides that that must be the greatest dog in the county. No man would talk about his dog like that unless he feared someone might be wanting his dog. And he awakens in his neighbor this desire for Penny's dog. And finally, finally it gets the best of him. And he brings the prize gun over and puts it in Penny's hand and insists that the trade be made. And this poor old excuse for a hunting dog is traded for this prize gun. Penny's sitting there with this prize gun that he'd wanted so long. And someone notices the deceit that's gone on. I think the words go something like this. Your words were straight. It was a bad dog. But your intentions, they were as crooked as the Okawala River. And dear ones, I want to tell you. Just getting the facts straight you know in your heart doesn't always tell the truth. Which facts and when and so on are all part of the recipe. And being a truthful person is about giving a truthful testimony, not just an atomic 
measure of what did I say? Was it sterling clean? The truth or the facts can be wielded like a hammer. They can be used to deceive. And we must stand above that. I also add for you this. I mentioned it before. Doing the truth and speaking the truth go hand in hand. And when you fail on either one, the other becomes very, very difficult. Forgive me for illustrating in the scene of family domestic drama. But I can be... I can remember an occasion or two when my parents asked myself or my siblings a simple question. What time did you get in last night? And my exceedingly brilliant sister and my fairly functional brothers, uh, older than myself, uh, lost their amazing grip on the English language. They could finagle and reason and they could craft words. They were wordsmiths, every one of them. But when they got that question, sometimes they just completely lost the capacity to speak, right? And what they did turn out was gibberish and nonsense. Well, I can't remember exactly. It's pretty late. I don't know. Right? They know everything else to the detail, right? They can't. Furnish the simple truth. Well, when you weren't making curfew, really, you understand what I'm saying? Speaking the truth becomes very heavy. And you'll do almost anything to avoid it. And there comes a time in our life when speaking the truth is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just sort of what's visible because we have to ask ourselves, are our lives aligned with the truth? There was a dear uh, New Testament scholar, a remarkable man. As it turns out, we, give a, we see a wonderful testimony from his life and his writings. His name is Ernst Trocmé. He was a Frenchman. He was a New Testament scholar. He came to the unpopular opinion when World War II was brewing and stewing and about to occur that the New Testament called Christians to be pacifist. That was not tolerated and appreciated and when assignments were made he didn't get some prestigious place like his accomplishments in academic world would suggest but instead he was farmed out to some French fundamentalist hard-headed French fundamentalist out in a place called La Chambon. They put him out there and branded him as a coward. Hmm. But no one can say with a straight face that Ernst Troke May is a coward today, not knowing his life. You see, he said he thought Jesus told him not to kill for his faith. But he, his knees didn't buckle when he came face to face with the prospect that he might die for his faith. And La Chambon, this little out-of-the-way place, 
begins to be a place where German officers are sent for rehabilitation. The place is crawling with German officers, SS officers everywhere, and his little church comes up with a code that they communicate with in the church paper. And his little church operates a housing for Jewish children. They smuggle Jewish children out. And they have Jewish children all over this city. Now, he always struggled never to lie. There was no doubt some deception in the trickery of the church newsletter. But they would move these children and so on. And when he was questioned, are there Jewish children here? He would say, yes. Do you know where they are? He would say, no. Or, well, you would have to find them, I suppose. Something like that. Always trying to avoid outwardly a kind of lying. But the beauty of his life is not that he tried not even in those terrible circumstances to tell a lie. The beauty of his life is this. His life was in step with this God of the world. And he would risk life and limb and imprisonment by smuggling these children. He did it because what Nazis were saying about the Jewish people is an ugly, deceitful lie. It shouldn't be spoken. It is un unworthy of any human person. It's against the God of this Old Testament. And they stood for a lie. And he stood up against them for the truth. And speaking the truth is going to have to go with standing for the truth. And standing up for the truth even in the face of loss. And they did finally discover some children after he had, and the church had bravely smuggled uh, hundreds of children out. And they came to arrest him. And you know what he did? He had dinner waiting for them. They found it ridiculous at first, but they sat down and had dinner with him before they carried him off to jail. And in this dinner, he spoke to them the truth. The truth about God. The truth about respecting persons. He lived the truth. And that gave him a boldness to speak the truth. And while I may not agree with him on the particulars of his philosophy of pacifism, I want to say to you, his story illustrates something for us beautifully. We must not only think that the truth is something we're obligated to kind of say in some technical sense. We've got to stand for the truth. Live out the truth. And boldly speak the truth. To do one or the other is sort of a comic reflection but the truth is to be lived. James said, you've got to be doers of this word. Now this morning, the truth is this. The God of all this world has loved you. He has sent his son to reclaim you. He on the cross has made a way possible to forgive you.
He, through the power of the resurrection, has defeated the deaths that have their claim on you. And he claims you back from that evil and that sin and that devil and all that drags us down. And he wants you to be his own. He wants to show you the way to the Father. And that's the truth that should haunt us, haunt us, until that day we square up with this Jesus and we acknowledge the truth. And then we surrender to the truth. And we surrender everything we are to this great and true and wonderful God. If there's someone here this morning and you've never squared up that most fundamental question, I ask you to surrender to this God of truth and find life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, call us to have a concern and a respect and a love for one another and attune our hearts to speak truthfully and to live truthfully. And let the love of God be manifested in the way we live and the way we speak to one another. Give us, God, the privilege to speak love in truth. I pray it so in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?